be seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your Bibles and turning with me to our passage this morning, which we find in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Last Sunday we finished our series of Nehemiah, been in it for some nine months. Uh, and we, of course, finished it last Sunday. Uh, the plan right now is probably towards the end of July, we're going to do a series on what is the church and what is the church supposed to do. We think of it this way, we want to know what our mission is and what tools, what means has God given to us to accomplish this mission. Again, to do kind of the, the schedule we have in, in July, we will start that towards the end of July. So in the meantime, we turn to Psalm 2 this morning so we can be led by and guided by the Spirit of God as we think through our understanding of the world we live in today. We need God's guidance in this, of course. Uh, so if you join me now as we pray, we come before God's Word together. Our God in heaven, we come to you now and we are reminded that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, and that is your word. We need this word. We need to be fed by it so we can better understand who you are and our call to be yours and our call to live as your people, as your disciples. Open our minds, open our hearts. Open our ears to that this morning. Be with me as your servant. May I only speak your truth. And may we only be edified by your truth this morning. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 2. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but my head seems to be spinning from everything that's going on in the world. And not just from the past week, but it's been gone for quite a while now. I think it's safe to say, I don't think it's hyperbole, I don't think it's exaggeration, but I think it's safe to say, the world around us has seemed to have gone crazy. 
and doesn't look like it's going to be sane anytime soon. What we consider to be right, biblical, foundational from God, what is right is now considered to be wrong. And wrong in, in such a way that we are persecuted, we are mocked, we are, uh, we are told we are the problem. And that which is wrong is now right. And not just tolerate it, but celebrate it and now force upon us that what we have thought all along is wrong. And so therefore, what is wrong is now right. And we need to be on the right side of history. As a bunk Clark in this past week was talking to a friend about this. And at one point he just kind of shook his head. He looked at me. He said, James, it's just hard to feel like we have been made for times such as this. I don't know if I could have said it any better. With all the craziness going on around us, it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to feel any sort of comfortable in this world, to feel like we should be here. To be confident in God's sovereignty and providence that we have been made for times such as this. It's very easy to feel like we are strangers in a very strange land. And we look at the world around us and we see how it rages against Christ and his church. Christ and us, Christ and his word, Christ and his way. Anything dealing with Jesus, the world rages against it. And at some point we have to stop and say, what do we do with all this? It's tempting to become Amish. Just gather all of our Bethel family up and Let's go somewhere deep in the woods and let's cut, cut the world all away from us. Cut it off away from us. So what do we do with all this? We Strangers in a strange land where right is wrong and wrong is right. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult and I would argue more dangerous to be a Christian in America. What do we do with this? We turn to God. The only thing we can do. We turn to God. We turn to His Word. We turn to Psalm 2 this morning because we find that for some of us it teaches us and for others of us it reminds us that Jesus is king. From our eye level, we see what's going on, but from the biblical eye level, from, from the spiritual high eye level, from the heavenly eye level, Jesus is king. The world belongs to him. All that is in the world belongs to Jesus. So this craziness is not happening in a vacuum. It's not happening in chaos. It's happening and Jesus is king. And that's where our confidence comes from. And, and Psalm 2 tells, teaches us that the best attitude we can have and the best worldview we can have is to submit to the kingship of Jesus instead of rebelling against it. Where's all the craziness in the world coming from? They're rebelling against their king. They're trying to stage a mutiny. They are failing. And they will fail. But they're raging. And they're angry. And it's going on around us. And the best thing you and I can do as God's people is to, to be encouraged and be reinforced in the belief and understand that Jesus is king. And no one will take him off his throne. And no one will be victorious over him. It's the foundation of a biblical worldview. How 
do we live in a world and time such as this? We live in a world and time such as this by understanding and believing that Jesus is king. That's the hope of the psalmist in Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is very much connected to Psalm 1. If you remember, Psalm 1 blesses a man uh, who walks not in the, in, in, in the way of sinners and goes on and, and explains the urgent individual uh, decision we each have to make. Who is it we are going to follow in life? Which path are we going to take? Are we going to follow after God and go down that path? Are we going to follow after a world which leads us away from God? Are we going to be led to God or led away from God? That's what Psalm 1 deals with on the individual level. And then Psalm 2 takes his big step back and looks at all of history. And we are reminded in all of history, Jesus is king. Again, when it, even when everything is crazy, and it doesn't seem to make sense. The psalm assures us Jesus is king. And all of history is heading towards one place, one goal, one destination, and that is the kingship of Jesus Christ. It may rebel, it may buck, it may be trying to, 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 to cause a mutiny, to bring up a mutiny. But it will fail. Because Jesus is king, he's king eternally. So we need to understand that this world we live in has been promised to Jesus. We are called to have faith to live our life as such. There's only one true king, and we are his people. And this is a reminder to us that the world isn't about us. We notice people, we say, what do you think the world revolves around them? Maybe we can all be guilty of such a view at some time. But it reminds us of our proper place. Our proper place which our, our summary of doctrine begins with. What was man made for? What's the chief in the man? It's not to glorify me and enjoy me forever. What we were made for, our chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And Psalm 2 explains that from the perspective that Jesus is King. And we live in His kingdom. We live in His world. We live as His people who have been made and then redeemed to glorify Him and to follow after Him. This Psalm helps us remember where our place is in this world is as the subjects of King Jesus. And you may notice in your Bible that this psalm is not attributed to anyone here. It doesn't say a psalm of David or a psalm of Moses or a psalm of Asaph. But we turn to Acts 4.25 and it tells us that this is from David. It says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then it recounts the first few verses of this psalm. I think it's important for us to understand because we need to understand, it, from, it helps us understand it from, from the perspective of, of David. And we know the story of, 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 of little shepherd boy David, right? Out keeping the flock. His family comes to him. Uh, he goes and he goes and kills Goliath. And he's made king over Israel. He's the man after God's own heart. But we also know that David struggled with sin. Big sins. Think of Bathsheba. 
small sins of fully trusting in God. And we're reminded that David is a sinner just like all of us. And think about how easy it could have been for David to have a pretty big ego. We're told he was, he was handsome. The ladies, the ladies loved him some David. He was a mighty warrior. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a hero of Israel. He's the king over Israel. I don't think David had trouble finding a date. It would have been very easy for David at some point to think, you know what? I am pretty great. And I have the resume to show to you that I am pretty great. People should be bowing down to me. And so we see this sort of taking out the rug underneath David's feet in this. He's not the greatest. Jesus is. So we're reminded that David is a sinner. He struggled with sin and, 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 and we're in the same boat as he is. We're sinners and our, and our sins ultimately are a rebellion against Jesus, aren't they? Our sins are ultimately a rebellion against the kingship of Jesus. And so like David, we need this reminder. We're not the greatest. The world doesn't revolve around us. The greatest is Jesus. And the greatest for us is to be a subject of King Jesus. But therein lies the issue. Not everybody views it that way. When we look at the world around us, what we see ultimately what's going on is, is, is a rebellion against the kingship of Jesus. Not everyone wants to live their lives according to his kingship. Not everyone wants to live their lives as if Jesus is a good king. All we have to do is look at the world around us even as we speak. And we find at the core of it is that to them, Jesus isn't their king. They don't want him as their king. He's the enemy. He's the problem. He's the one he's being rid of. The core of their thinking, the core of their philosophy is if we would just get rid of Jesus. If Nietzsche was just right and that God is dead, this would all be fine. The core of all the craziness in the world around us is the fact that they hate Jesus as king. And the sad thing is, we can too. Because that's what we see in our sins, don't we? Jesus says, I'm your king, here's the best way to live. And we in our sins say, you're a liar. You're wrong. This holds more pleasure. This will get me where I want to go. This is the path I should be on. And we rebel against the kingship of Jesus. Our sins are ultimately a symptom of us wanting to be the king of our own lives, to be the sole ruler and authority of everything that happens to us. Our sins are ultimately where we love ourselves and we love our sins more than we love Jesus and more than we can, more than we love and obey and follow after Jesus. And that's the first rebellion we find in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve 
Create an image of God, having perfect fellowship and relationship with God. Everything was perfect. And what did they do? They decided to go their own way. Like Fleetwood Mac said, they went their own way because they thought they knew better. And that's the sin that we can still struggle with. And so the psalmist gets straight to this point by looking at this rebellion in terms of leadership we see in verses 1 through 3. The kings, the rulers of the nations, this leadership that's rebellion against God. And we understand the nature of leadership. Leaders have followers. Kings and rulers have subjects, those who follow him. And so what the psalmist is doing here is talking about leadership that is representative of all who rebel against Jesus' kingship from the top to the bottom. This isn't just about the, the president of this nation or the king of this nation or the CEO of this corporation. It's leadership and all those who follow after him. This rebellion over all. If you read this, you, you, you get the sense that the psalmist David is, is astonished at the senseless rejection of God's rule and ruler. It, it comes to him across like, like insanity. Imagine David sitting there and he's going, Why? Why would somebody reject God as king, reject his gracious rule? It's insanity to do so. It's insanity to go against the one true king and his rule and his way. But that's exactly what they're doing in this psalm, and they're still doing it to this day. Again, the world around us gives example after example of rebellion against God and his rule. Every morning, when we get up and we look in the mirror, we find another example of rebellion against God and his rule. Because we are sinners. There's still rebellion in the world. There's still rebellion with us against God and his rule. Now, the Hebrew verb for rage here gives us a sense of how deep this goes, that the verb is in the perfect sense. And in the Hebrew, that means it gives the sense of fixed determination, that the nations, the kings, the people, they are determined to rebel against God and his rule. This is a conscientious choice. They haven't just you know, stumbled into it. They haven't just accidentally come across as they don't come into it blindly. They have made the choice that God is not their king. And they refuse to bow underneath his rule. They are going to rebel. They want to rebel. They are dead set to rebel against God. So they run headlong into it. They were doing it then and they are doing it now. We look at the state of marriage, the state of family, just the state of morality. And it's far more easier to find rebellion than it is obedience. And the world around us seems, rebellion seems to far outweigh the obedience in our day and our time. That is the reality that surrounds us. We are strangers in a strange land. Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he's calling us to love him and to keep, keep his commandments in a world that is determinedly, determined to be set against our God. 
And David gives a sense of, continue with the, the Hebrew word for plot, which expresses a repeated action, customary behavior. I right, said, so this is the total package. These people have so made their mind to rebel against God, it's become a, a part of their identity. It's what they do. It's the equivalent of, of James Dean being asked, what are you rebelling against? And his answer is, what do you got? I'm going to rebel. I'm determined to do it. And that's the world with God and his rule and his kingship. It's who they are, it's what they do, and they do it with resolve. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. When you look to God, and don't see a loving father. When they look to Jesus, they don't see a good king. They only see cords and bonds and chains and shackles. And they are struggling and they are fighting against this. And they're resolved to be away from God. And we know how far that resolve goes because we see it on Calvary, don't we? Do you remember when Jesus was crucified, they put a sign at the top of the cross. Do you remember what that sign said? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That was not identification. That was mockery. Look at this king we've crucified. This man who said he is God, who cannot even get himself down from the cross. We have killed your king. And that resolve is around us to this very day. The world we live in would love to see Jesus crucified again. Wednesday evening, 8 p.m. prime time, Every channel, every website, every Twitter feed, glorying in the crucifixion of the one true king. That is how far and how deep their sin runs. And this serves as a good warning to us. We may find it unimaginable that we would be like them. We would like to think that if we were at Golgotha that day, we would not be at the crowd crying out to crucify Jesus. But yet, what do our sins say? He is not my king. He is not the one I choose to serve. I know better. The world knows better. When we choose to doggedly and determinedly rebel against God and his rule, then this is the path we put our feet on. And there is no good end to rebelling against God and his gracious rule. That's what he says in verses 4. Verse 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. For God's people, one day we are going to hear God's laugh. It's going to be one, one of the most wonderful sounds we will ever hear. But that's not the laughter here. This isn't the laughter of God hearing a good joke, not of good humor, not of him having a good time. This is the laughter of derision. That laughter that says, who do you think you are? This is the holy laughter of holy mockery. Of the holy holy laughter of a creator looking down at his creation who plots and plans to be free of his sovereignty and his providence. And from that perspective, how, how silly and unfruitful does it look to our sovereign and providential God to see his creation, even some of those who claim to be his people, trying to work against his gracious rule. As if they are God, as if they could overcome God. So he laughs. But it's not a good laugh. It's a laugh that only lasts for a short time. He will laugh for a moment, and then he will speak to them in his wrath. There will be laughter and derision, If the rebellion doesn't stop, then there will be his perfect and just wrath and fury. Now, at this point, we may expect some sort of big action to take place. That fires are going to come from the sky and consume all these people. But that's not what happens. We, We get something more. We get a promise. And the promise is this. He will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, when he says to them, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does God do? He makes a promise. A promise against their rebellion by the installing of his king. He looks down on these people and he says, you may push, you may prod, you may rebel, but I have an answer to this. And the answer is a king. And the immediate fulfillment of that promise was David, who God used to help his people succeed against their enemies. They saw that the immediate fulfillment with him. But we know through the gospel that the immediate fulfillment points to the ultimate fulfillment, which is Jesus Christ. So how has God chosen to deal with this crazy world, with this determined and ongoing rebellion against him? By giving his son, the second person of Trinity, to be king. I don't, I don't know a lot about playing chess. I'm not smart enough to play chess. But I know enough to know it's very strategic. And you're thinking three or four or five, six moves ahead. And your ultimate goal is to have checkmate. Where they have no other move optional they lose. This... This is God's checkmate move right here. You think you know better than me? You think you can do better without me? Well, let me show you. Here's Jesus. Checkmate. The game is over. And he furthers by saying he's going to set his king on Zion. That's the hill north of Jerusalem. And it's important because it's the location of the temple. And Jerusalem
wisdom as a whole is sometimes called Zion, but earthly Zion was a token of the heavenly Zion. Much of the symbolism of the temple point to heavenly realities. So where is God going to set his king? Not on the throne of Jerusalem. He's going to set him in Zion. Representation of heaven. Representation of eternity. It's not a four-year term king, not an eight-year term king. This is a forever king. And the emphasis on verse 6 is on I. Who does this? God does this. So here is checkmate. God takes his son and places him on the eternal throne. God wins. That's Revelation. And that's the cross. And that's our lives. And that's our faith. God wins. In verses 7 through 9, we find Jesus' response to this. He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I love the Bible. And one of the main things I love about the Bible is how it's all connected. So we, we say it's, it's covenantal nature. And so what we see the Father saying to the Son here in Psalm 2, we see echoed in Jesus' baptism and, his, and in his transfiguration. When he is baptized, what did, what did the voice of the Father say? This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. What did he say in the transfiguration? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The Father is using language here that he first used in Psalm 2, giving us an echo of who Jesus is. The Son of God, the one who is baptized, the one who is transfigured, he is the one who is king. He is the one who is the king of God's people, the king set on Zion. And we see an echo of this as well in the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his followers to go out to the ends of the earth why? Because according to Psalm 2, the ends of the earth belong to King Jesus. It's only a king who can send his heralds out throughout his kingdom to tell others about who he is. And that's what Jesus does. And there's one more connection here I think is so wonderful. A rod of iron points us to Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23 helps us understand what kind of king Jesus is in Psalm 2. He's a king like that of a shepherd. He is caring. He is loving. He is personal. He goes in front of us to take care of our enemies. And he provides all good things for us. So he can ultimately take us home to heaven. So it's a kingship of victory. The shepherd never loses a sheep. The king never loses a battle or a subject. And that's the good news for us. But that's the bad news for the world. Because they have already lost. And they don't know it. And when Jesus comes back. He comes back in that victory and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is King.
And that's the wisdom that's counseled at the end of verses 10 through 12. Who is your king? Who is it you follow? Psalm 2 is a death sentence for the world. Psalm 2 is the gospel for us. Psalm 2 is the gospel for us because it calls us to believe in the one who so loved us that he came to be our king. And not just to be a king on the throne, but to be a king who's a shepherd, who loves you, who knows you, who leads you, who guides you, who takes you through all bad things. But he's there with you. He goes in front of you. His rod protects you. His rod and his staff, they guide you. Psalm 2 is the gospel because it reminds us that apart from Christ, we have that destinous, but in Christ, we now know the goodness of the kingship of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with a world such as this? We love Jesus and we follow Jesus. No matter what the world may, may rant and rage about, we follow after Jesus. And blessed are those who follow this king. And may you be blessed as you follow this king. Pray with me.